You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but you still might be wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more I can do right now to secure my future? Well, it's time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. Today's special bonus episode is just for you. Specifically, it's for all you entrepreneurs out there. We see you, we love you, and we have heard from you in record numbers these past few months. So many of you wrote to us after listening to our entrepreneurial-focused episode last year. That was number 290 building your business during tough times. And that show featured the incredible and talented Amy Arrett, founder of Madison Reed. We're so thankful she agreed to come back with us to tackle some of your personal questions. And Amy is a four-time entrepreneur and venture capitalist who led her team through 130% growth and a 12 times increase in customer demand during the pandemic without one single layoff. Just since we last spoke to her, Madison Reed has grown to have 60 hair color bars across the country and will end 2022 with 80 locations and hire more than 800 colorists. Amy's also a venture partner at True Ventures, focusing on investments in consumer and e-commerce startups. And she was featured on Fast Company's Queer 50 list of LGBTQ women and non-binary innovators in business. Today, she is with us from her home in San Francisco that she shares with her wife, Claire, and their daughter, whose name, of course, is Madison Reed. Amy, nice to have you back. Thank you very much for having me. That was a mouthful, Jean, but thank you. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. The word entrepreneur, I don't know if you've found this. It is not my favorite word. It is hard to say, (laughs) and it's hard to say multiple times, but for you, I'm happy to do it. Before we dive in, I just want to ask about that growth story, the growth that you've experienced in just the last six months. What's been working for you and what have the biggest challenges been? Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, the growth has been extraordinary. As you said, during COVID, our online business grew dramatically and we've continued to keep the majority of those customers. We've also made a decision since 50% of the market is never going to do their hair at home, that it was important for us to keep disrupting the salon side of color. And so we have opened hair color bars in 17 different hubs, as you said. I think we have 61 open now, soon to be 80 by the end of the year. I think there's been two things. One is our service is exactly what busy women are looking for. It's time bound as well as the ingredients in our product, as you know, are really something you could feel good about. We've taken out the eight most harsh chemicals in the hair color. And so we have found this segment that we call the salon realist. And that's a segment of a primarily busy woman who's got a lot in their life, who doesn't want to be there for three hours and wants a reasonable price with ingredients that she knows about. And what's particularly interesting, Jean, is that she also wants flexibility to do it at home with the same color if she chooses to. And so, as you know, the difference in our product is it's the same exact color you use at home as we use on you in our hair color bars. 
we took advantage of aggressive real estate strategy, right? The commercial real estate market, unfortunately, has been really negatively affected by COVID as many retail stores either couldn't make it or just decided that they weren't going to stay open. And so we've opened in places that I think otherwise we might not have been able to get the kind of leases or be located in the locations that we desired. So we really hit the throttle in March of 2020. We had 12 locations, and today we're 61 two years later. We're excited about the strategy. What we have found to be sort of transparent about this, which has been great, is that in those hubs where we have hair color bars, our online business thrives as well. And we're primarily in Alta as a retail partner, not the same number of shades as you can get online at madisonreed.com. That business thrives. Those stores do better. So what you come to understand is that this notion that retail is dead is absolutely not true. It's just that people want to shop any way they want, and they don't want to be forced into one way to shop. And we found that to be true. So we're excited. I think the biggest challenge, as you asked, has been hiring. The great resignation is real. So when anybody sort of says, oh, that's just not true, it is true. I think people were forced to find alternative sources of income. Many of the folks that I suspect are talking to you during this period of time got very curious about other ways they may make a living. And I think that sort of notion is here to stay. So we, the hardest part of our business right now is hiring those 800 stylists that we think we offer a great career opportunity. We pay 100% of benefits. We're paying signing bonuses. We're giving people career pathing training in an industry that has been primarily independent contractors. So we like our chances, but it takes time to ramp that up. Yeah, I get it. I mean, we're small, but we've we've had our hiring challenges too. And let me just say thank you for really being here to answer these listeners' entrepreneurial questions because you've got this specialty and you've got it nailed. So let's dive in. The first question that we have comes from Nicole. She wrote to us after listening to our last episode with you, and she said, Hi, Amy. I've owned my bakery, cafe, catering business for nearly 20 years, and I still love what I do, but I know that now I'm in my 50s, the physicality of my job may begin to get harder in the next five to 10 years. I've been thinking a lot about selling in the next five years. And with COVID, I'm aware this may be a moving target, but of course I don't want to fully retire. So I've begun the process of looking for my next career, but this is where I feel crippled to make a decision. It's a big issue. I don't want to go back to corporate America. My background is in accounting, but I do want to start figuring out how to properly value my business so that when I do decide to make the move, I'll be an informed seller with a good sense of how to price my business that I spent so many years building. Essentially, if someone were to walk in the door and say, I want this place, how do I figure out what number to give them? So my two questions are, how do I choose my next career move out of all the options in the world? And how do I properly value my business before a sale? Thank you so much. P.S. I love the podcast you did with Jean and learned a lot. Great. So I'll take the two separate questions because they're two very different things. Let's take the one about valuing the business. You know, there are services that are appraisal-based services that exist in the world where you go to a valuation company and they look at relevant comps, right? Because part of just like real estate, 
what people look at about businesses is what did other people pay for businesses that looked similar to that. The two major ways that people will value a business is either a multiple of revenue, so how much revenue are you producing a year, or in these kinds of businesses, because I assume it's a profitable business or you wouldn't be doing it for this long, a multiple of what I would call EBITDA. And, you know, they'll back out things like salary and uh, compensation that you might be taking in the form of a dividend or those kinds of things. I think that it sounds like it's been a very attractive business, given you've been doing it that long and it's been a passion-based business. And so I think just finding the right, I'm not even sure it's an accountant, I think it's valuation services, to just give you relevant comps of what these kinds of businesses have gone for will give you a relatively good idea. And it varies, but in consumer businesses now, I would sort of peg things in the two to three X revenue if it's a profitable business. So just kind of anchor on that. As far as what to do next, I always take people back to this thing that I talk about, which is the zone of genius. And I think that where I've seen success in my own life, I can only speak to that on a personal level, has been when I knew when the things I was doing were not fulfilling to me, and I decided to create situations that were fulfilling to me. For me, it's been about building a team, about taking a category that nobody was paying attention to and disrupting it in sort of unique and interesting ways that I think other people inside the bubble would say weren't possible right? Because often we think about things in terms of all the reasons why we can't do something versus the reasons why we can. And most of the time we can choose to do the things that we want to do. It sounds like you're an entrepreneur, right? So you like to do new things. I don't blame you for not going back into a big business. I think once you've had the freedoms of your own successful company, it creates a lifestyle that, again, I always say that I'm somebody who is going to move myself towards something where my personal and professional are blurred because I'm the same person that comes to work that, you know, goes into the house every day and has a personal life. And I want those freedoms to be true. What struck me in your experience has been your success in the restaurant slash bakery business. So what would be an interesting thing is I would think many restaurants are struggling these days. Can you find a way to do some consulting? Can you find a way to meet with some other people who may not have your success and sort of help them along the way. Initially, I have found in career transitions that consulting is a very interesting thing to do as you sort out where you want to land next. And, you know, I always tell people to try to think about what are the skills that you have that are joyous to you, literally. They, I call it ease and flow. And so I know the things that are not Amy's ease and flow, I don't want to be an accountant, not a good use of my time, but things like building culture, building interesting businesses, recruiting people, putting teams together is my ease and flow. And so I would urge you to think about what it is that you've loved about running your bakery. And then the one thing I would add is, do you have to sell it? So the other option I would say is, could you find somebody else to run it? And you are more in a position of helping and guiding and giving yourself some more freedom. And maybe your compensation isn't as much, but you get the freedoms in your life and you can pick up other things to do at the same time. So I try to 
always tell people you can have your cake and eat it too. I know that's a bad pun for this, but yes, literally. Literally in this instance. And I was wondering the same thing, Amy. I was also wondering if she owns the building. Yeah. Right. And she could sell the business and keep the building. Exactly. I have cousins who own shoe stores in Philadelphia and the real estate. The Shermans. The Shermans, exactly. And they have done really, really well because of holding on to the real estate. So just an interesting thing to do. One other thing to point out before we move on to the next question, you talked about EBITDA. For people who aren't familiar, it's essentially your earnings with interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization added back. And it's just used to compare profitability among companies and industries. It basically eliminates the effects of financing and capital expenditures. And so it gives you a level playing field in that way. But that was such a wonderful answer. I love all of those thoughts. This next question comes from Meredith and she writes, for many years, I had a traditional job with a 401k and two years ago, I made the leap into entrepreneurship. I have to be honest, I wouldn't be here without my husband who is a high earner and has provided a safety net for me to confidently and comfortably strike out on my own. But I'm ready to take the next step and start saving for my own future as I build my business. Where do small business owners even start? What are my options? I'm kind of green in this area, and I'd love to hear of options that don't cost a fortune, ideally that will let me save automatically over time without even thinking about it, kind of like my 401k at my old job. And Meredith, I'm just relieved to see the question, quite frankly, because I think there are a lot of business owners who think, well, my business is my retirement plan. I'll just sell it when I get down the road. And so often it doesn't work out for the best. So Amy, let me let you weigh in. I've got a few thoughts here as well. Sure. So first of all, Meredith, congratulations in taking that leap. I think it's awesome that you wanted to do it, you did it, and you're looking to continue to do it. And I think it's awesome that you have a partner that is allowed you to do that. So congratulations, because often for people, it is the block, which is how can I take all this risk without having any financial security? The thing that I would say is that any business continues to allow you to have a 401k. So you could set up a 401k plan within your business. It is minimal cost because the way that any of these providers work is they're taking a minimal fee of the assets that somebody puts into the 401k. So number one, you could have a 401k. You may not want to match it initially. Yeah. 401ks are 100% an option, but there are others too. You could fund a SEP IRA, which is incredibly simple. You could fund a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA if you don't have enough to put it into the SEP. And you asked specifically about saving automatically over time. All you have to do is set up a system where money moves from your checking account once it lands into the coffers of your brokerage firm. It's just a series of automatic transfers. It's not difficult. It's just a matter of setting up the technology to do it yourself. But you could do it yourself or a representative from wherever you open that account could walk you through it with no problem at all. And I think the automation of it is 
absolutely key to success because as an entrepreneur, you're busy. And the last thing you want is to have to think about the fact that you want to make a contribution every single month. You just want that contribution to get made. And while we're talking about retirement, let me just acknowledge retirement is a big deal. And since women live longer, we have to make our savings last longer. And that means we have to plan smarter. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with an advisor. This is the sort of advisor, Meredith, that could help you set up a small business retirement plan. You can get a fresh look at your finances and you can work with experts to create a plan to help build, grow, and protect and preserve your wealth for the retirement of your dreams because it's your money. Nobody cares about it as much as you do. And so the goal is to make it count. The way to get started is to go to planefe.com slash hermoney and to speak with an advisor today. I'm talking with Amy Errett, founder and CEO of Madison Reed, where we're tackling all of your entrepreneurial questions. The next one comes from a member of our private Facebook group. She writes, a friend has been working as a baker for 15 years. Without exaggerating, she is the hardest working person that I know, sometimes holding three jobs at a time in the early days. It's been her dream for years to own her own place, and I promised myself I'd invest in her first business whenever it happened. An opportunity for her has come up, and I'm in a place where I can afford to invest some money, not a lot, but maybe one or two percent of what the business is worth. My question is, what's the best way to do that? Most articles I found online talk about either debt or dividends, but I wouldn't want a dividend until she was really established in her new place and making a profit. And I'm assuming the amount I'd invest would be so small a dividend, it's kind of laughable. But I also don't like the idea of it being debt that needs to be repaid. My perspective is that if her first business fails, I'm okay not getting the money back. The food industry is rough in a good year. I could just give it as a gift, but I'd really like to be part of this in an investment type way. How does this work when you're just a normal person and not a millionaire or a bank? It's a great question. So first, I think it's awesome that you want to invest in a friend's business. As I said before, everyone thinks about these things in some sophisticated venture way. And, you know, there's a couple of different things that come to mind. One, it could just be a straight equity investment, meaning the company gets valued. And again, we talked about that, which is you could put some value on the company. You invest a dollar amount and whatever that dollar amount is divided by the value of the company, including your dollar amount as a percentage of equity that you own. Any good incorporation attorney is going to know how for you to make an equity investment. And an equity investment basically means that you own a percentage of the company, you could determine, again, as you said, whether you want to get paid out that percentage of earnings as a dividend or whether you just want to let it sit. And then whenever there is some liquidity event, meaning the company sells, or if you want to sell your shares in the company to somebody else, you could at whatever the future value is. The other thing that I could see is you could set this up as a debt structure, meaning it's a loan And then it's with a alternative to convert that to equity. So one of the things that people do is, let's say, Amy's going to make this simple. The company is valued at 
$100,000, you decide to put uh, $10,000 in. Uh, so you have a $10,000 loan to the company. At any future, there's a discount or a premium, depending on how you value it, of let's say 15%. And that means that your $10,000 gets a 15% earnings on an annual basis. And at a later time, you decide to convert it to equity. You would convert it to equity at whatever the current value of the debt is, plus the interest you've accrued. And so there's a way that you're getting more equity for having loaned the money. So there is, you know, that's called convertible debt, by the way. And if your friend has a attorney that's an incorporating the company, they're going to know about these structures. And the other part that I always say, I think it's awesome. I, what I tell people all the time is don't invest in any private company unless you're okay to lose the money. And I don't mean that as a negative. It's just if you look at the failure rate of small businesses, it's quite high. So the first thing is if it's money that you can't afford to invest, don't do it. Second thing is if you're okay, it doesn't feel good to lose it, but you're okay to lose it, then that's a good perspective. And then the upside of that is what can you do to help this person succeed because you're invested in a different way. I would not give the money. I would make the investment as an investment. And that way you could be a partner to the person to help them in terms of resources. But I think it's fantastic. I do too. And I think even though it sounds from your letter like you're trying to make this as simple for your friend as possible, there needs to be some sort of simple legal paperwork. It doesn't need to be expensive here at Her Money. We have a small business attorney. He's not a fortune. And it's okay. When it comes to all of these kind of questions, your friend is going to want to have that sort of counsel anyway. So I wouldn't be shy about asking for some sort of paperwork. Our next question comes from Maggie. She says, since the pandemic started, I've been considering starting a business. During COVID, I started a candle making side gig on Etsy and it's going great and I'm incorporating soon. I would say I'm about six months away from considering leaving my full-time job to pursue candles full-time. And that's a sentence I never thought I'd say. But here's the thing. Just after college, I got way in over my head with credit card debt, and I'm still paying down about $10,000 of high interest rate debt. Assuming I continue meeting all my other obligations with rent and student loan payments, I'm looking at another 18 months before it's fully paid off. My question is, would it be ill-advised to start my business before my high interest debt is paid off? Should I stay in my full-time job until it's completely eliminated? And if not, what are your best tips for starting a business while also paying down debt? So in my opinion, you should pay off the debt as soon as possible, especially if it's high interest debt. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> now, there's two things I want to comment on because I'm always one to tell people to follow their dreams. I'm also somebody who, even though it appears as if just says these words and then does whatever they believe, I'm also financially quite prudent because I believe that when you have the safety and security, then your decisions are better decisions. So if you had this debt behind you, you would, I believe, make better business decisions in the candle making business. The thing that I want to focus on is how to help you get out of high interest debt. So I think the question becomes, are there other ways to refinance that debt that aren't as high interest? And, you know, there's lots of 
alternative sources of debt these days, which are quite interesting, and they're lower interest rates, and it's people lending to people. And there's lots of, you know, interesting business models that have that these days that you can kind of look into, or places like SoFi, which has its own way of refinancing this debt at interest rate. It just means it's going to take longer to pay it off, but it'll be more reasonable amounts of payment. But I'm a believer, get rid of debt as quickly as possible. So I would stay in your current environment until that debt gets paid off. Second piece is the actual candle making business. Sounds interesting. Sounds, I think it's probably a very low cost of goods and high margin business, which I like. My guess is if you're selling it through Etsy, I think you said that, that you are doing it online. I think it's a super interesting business and one that I think you could probably make a income at. The thing that I would share with you is I actually looked at a lot of candle making businesses at scale. They become a lot harder to make high profits. But I think as a business that you're having and having a good time, and one thing I'd add to that is see if you could distribute your candles through local stores as well not just online remotely, because I think, again, these omni-channel businesses, meaning multiple ways to sell a product, will end up being much quicker for you to be profitable than just looking at Etsy online, which I think probably charges a significant commission. Not only do they charge a significant commission, but evidently their fees are going up. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. As far as the debt is concerned, I'd also just take a look at balance transfer credit cards. Because you're at the point where you think you can get out of this debt in 18 months, you should be able to find a balance transfer card that will have a period of a very, very low, if not zero interest rate for at least a year. And some have had rates that extend to 18 months. So just run the numbers. These cards usually have a balance transfer fee of about 3% and make sure that that 3% is going to come out in the wash, that you're going to save a lot more because of the much, much lower interest rate. Before we take our last question, I want to remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU, and BCU is one of the nation's fastest-growing credit unions. BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. Find out if you're eligible by visiting bcu.org. Our last question is from Samantha, and Samantha writes, I am the owner of a boutique experiences agency. We help people set up surprise engagements in the park, get married via a flash wedding, and create viral videos featuring those experiences. For the last several years, I've just been using contractors to help me execute everything, and thanks to a lot of loyal friends, and last-minute luck posting opportunities on Facebook, I've been able to pull things off. But honestly, I'm kind of sick of never knowing who will be available when, and I've been considering hiring an official employee. It would be my first and would represent a big step for my company and me personally as a business owner. And honestly, I have to say, I find the prospect of hiring to be more terrifying than anything else in my entrepreneurial journey. It feels so daunting. Am I incorporated the right way to accommodate an employee? I'm an LLC. What do I need to know about helping this person with taxes and health benefits? 
I feel like when I add up all the help I'm going to need to figure this out, I'm going to end up spending $150,000 to hire a $50,000 employee, and it's intimidating as hell. I would love any guidance that you can offer. Thank you so much. I would first decide whether or not the conclusion you've made, which is to hire somebody, is it fact-based? Meaning, is it really true that you can't find people to help you? If the answer to that is definitively yes, then the hiring process, I don't believe, has to be that daunting. I think you could partner with a payroll company that's going to take care of all of the things that you talked about, right? The payroll company will handle taxes. The payroll company will administratively set this up. There are systems to do this that are turnkey that exist online. You do not need to be the one that figures out the taxes themselves. That's their obligation. So if you partner with any of these human resource systems, they have turnkey processes. And those turnkey processes has forms that a employee fills out. They fill out the W-2 and you effectively have the payroll company handle all of the administrative things. So I don't see how you're going to spend $150,000 to hire a $50,000 person. However, I do think that there are what I would consider to be management obligations that are very different than the money spent. And those management obligations come with, I don't know what state you're in, but the state is important to understand because with an employment relationship, there are labor kinds of laws that exist. So what I would be less focused on is the paperwork and more focused on what I would consider to be the employer-employee relationship and what that means in terms of legal obligations. And so, you know, those are about fair practices of employment law. Those are about, you know, things like performance feedback, making sure that this person has career opportunities, that you've been very clear about the obligation and responsibilities that they have. So, I don't look at this in terms of paperwork numbers. That's easy. I always think about this in terms of, are you ready to take on the responsibility of managing somebody and the legal ramifications that a employer and employee might have depending on the state that you're in? First of all, I totally relate to this question. I remember hiring my first employee. It just feels like a lot to know that you are responsible for their living right? That your business is responsible for their living. And I'm wondering if an in-between move might be to find another independent contractor that she could hire to do work on a regular schedule, a schedule that is a little bit more predictable or gives her a certain number of hours per week or per month. Yeah. One thought I had when you were saying that I was on the sort of same track is, could you just pay somebody a monthly fixed retainer that had a certain number of hours that said, you know, Amy's making it up, but it's 20 hours a week. The salary would be X. So let's decide that it's half of that salary and pay you as a contractor. I do also believe, though, that one thing to think through A lot of states are believing that even though you say somebody is a contractor, you may be obligated to treat them as an employee. So my point is that I'm becoming quite familiar with state labor laws uh, in various states that we're in. 
So the daunting part for me is not the setup. The daunting part for me is, are you ready to take that responsibility? And I would also run the miles with your corporate attorney that what constitutes somebody who's acting like an employee that may just be a contractor? Because there's a lot of movement in that direction right now. So I, I don't want to set up a warning flag, but I just want to say that that's something to think through, which brings me back to having a good advisor, having a good business lawyer or you know small business advisor is really critical because there's a lot of pitfalls. The answer is having an LLC is a fine way to have an employee. Yeah. Well, thank you for being one of our advisors, Amy. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you for doing this with us today. We're so happy that you could be here. And I got to say, I learned a lot from the answers to these questions. If you are an entrepreneur, we want you to know that her money's here for you. And you can always write to us with your questions at mailbag at hermoney.com. Amy, thanks again so much. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon.